Our gospel reading this morning is concerned with finalizing the demonstration of the competence of Jesus prior to his actual assumption of public ministry in the service of God's plan of salvation. Prior to that, in Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 38, we encounter an indication that Jesus has the requisite credentials, power, and authority to go about God's mission. But this has to be matched with Jesus' positive response to God's purpose. Hence, in this episode of the gospel, Jesus signals his alignment with the will of God in a way that surpasses the evidence that has already been provided by his submission to God at his baptism. In the Old Testament and the subsequent Jewish tradition, fidelity to God was proven in the midst of testing, whether by the direct action of God himself through difficult circumstances or by the direct activity by the devil. In this scene in particular, the devil is seeking specifically to challenge the role of Jesus in God's plan of salvation. Up to this point in the Gospel of Luke, we have encountered various threads of opposition and hostility, exposed as manifestations of evil that would thwart the advent of God's salvation. Behind those efforts stand the devil, who now steps out from behind the curtains for a direct confrontation with the one through whom God would manifest his redemptive will. Behind Jesus, on the other hand, stands the Holy Spirit through whom we are presented with literally a clash of cosmic proportions between the divine and the diabolic. In addition, Luke seems to be deliberate in drawing parallels from scriptural narration of and reflection of Israelites' own wilderness wanderings and testings. Examples would include the divine leading of God's people in the wilderness, drawn from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 2. The significance of the number 40, as spelled out in Exodus 16 verse 35. The pointing of Israel as God's son in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 to 23. The testing of Jesus is also a parallel to the testing experienced by Israel. And the scriptural texts that he cites are derived from those events which Israel is tested by God. Though Jesus was full of the Spirit and followed the Spirit's guidance, Israel rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. We should also take note of the far-reaching similarity between the nature of Israel's testing and the testing of Jesus. According to Deuteronomy, Israel was allowed to hunger in order to learn that one does not live by bread alone. Israel was instructed to worship the one and only God and not to follow other gods. Israel, was commanded not to put to the test the Lord God. In each case, however, Israel failed in their obedience to God. But unlike Israel, Jesus proved his fidelity in the wilderness and is thus presented as God's true son in whom the destiny of Israel was recapitulated and the divine purposes of God accomplished 
in that he renders to God the obedience and the trust that Israel failed to give. We must not think that the three temptations came in and went like scenes in a play. We must rather think of Jesus deliberately retreating to this lonely place in the wilderness and for 40 days wrestling with the problem of how he could rescue the souls of men. It was a long battle which never ceased until the cross and the story ends by saying that the tempter left him until an opportune time. In tempting Jesus, the devil takes the assertion that is made in chapter 3 and makes it the basis of his challenge. So you are the son of God, huh? Very well. If that is true, then prove it. So in three ways, Jesus was to demonstrate to the devil's satisfaction that he was in fact who he said he was. Surely, it is the right of the Son of God to have the provisions of all his needs. He was hungry and needed food. He has the power to make it, so let him do so. Surely, it is his right to receive the power over all nations and to become the King of Kings. And since the world is in Satan's hands, it is from him that Jesus can receive it, of course with a sly condition that he acknowledges Satan as the Lord. Surely it is in his right to claim protection against all dangers, and his father has actually promised it. So let him put that promise to the test. The response of Jesus is astounding, to say the least. It is a helpful lesson for us that in dealing with the devil's temptations, Jesus turns each time to scripture, quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, the divine law given through Moses by which man was to live. The answers of Jesus are in effect as follows. First, that he was not going to let the feeding of his body take precedence over his obedience to God. Jesus chose to follow the leading of the Spirit and manifest an unwavering trust in God to supply his needs. He refused to relieve his hunger by exercising his power apart from God. Quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, he does not minimize his need for food. In fact, he identifies himself with the starving people of God in their hunger, while at the same time affirming his trust in God's divine provision. Ultimately, his message is that we will never find life and satisfaction from the material things this world has to offer. The theologian Augustine says, you have created us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Secondly, Jesus understands that the purpose of God is to grant him the eternal kingdom. But the devil's invitation is for Jesus to deny his identity as God's own son and instead pay allegiance to the devil. By the devil's own admission, he is not co-equal with God. Whatever rule the devil may exercise, it is that which has been allowed him by God. He can therefore only delegate to Jesus what has been delegated to him. 
what Jesus is offered then is a shabby substitute for the divine sonship that is his birth. He is faced with the temptation to compromise. And his reply, again quoted from Deuteronomy, is a rejection of the devil's pretensions to absolute sovereignty and a reaffirmation of his uncompromising fidelity to God. Thirdly, Jesus is committed to one aim, God's eschatological agenda. Whereas the devil has an alternative competing agenda. His agenda is seeking to recruit Jesus to participate in a test of the divine promises of Psalm 91. And in doing so, the devil overlooks the fact that the psalm is addressed to those who, through their faithfulness to God, reside in God's presence. People who, through faithful obedience to God, continue to follow after him. Moreover, the devil fails to recognize an even deeper mystery that divine rescue may actually come through suffering and death and that the wilderness temptations and suffering are meant to reveal our identity in Christ. Jesus responds not by denying the validity of God's promises, but by denying the suitability of their appropriation in this context, and by recognizing the devil's strategy as an, as an attempt to deflect him from the single-minded commitment to loyalty and obedience to God's service. He interprets the devil's invitation as an encouragement to question God's faithfulness. Israel had manifested its doubt by testing God in the wilderness, but Jesus refuses to do so. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus is deliberately emptying himself of his power and glory and putting himself in the position of man, man under the authority of the law of God. Being found in human form, the Bible says he humbled himself and became obedient. He is taking us essentially to square one and declaring that he is the new Adam. In Eden, the head of the human race was confronted by the tempter. He disobeyed God's word and set the whole mankind off on the wrong track. Now comes the second Adam, and alone in the wilderness, he in turn confronts the tempter. The difference is that Christ wins. He is the totally obedient man, man as he was meant to be, man who is altogether righteous, man who never loses his relationship with God because of sin and temptation. He overcomes, he overcomes Satan by his undeviating obedience to his will, to the will of God, and obedience, which as Philippians 2 verse 8 goes on to tell us, he pursues unto death, even death on the cross. Where the people of Israel had failed their own wilderness test, where Moses, David, and Elijah had faltered in their own callings through disobedience, infidelity, or exhaustion, Jesus proves his obedience, his faithfulness, his strength. His victory over the devil 
was a victory to fulfill Israel's calling through perfect faithfulness to God's word. This Lent, brothers and sisters, may we look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, the one who proved himself qualified to be our savior. As Hebrew 2 verse 18 states, since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. This morning, we can take comfort in the gospel lesson that makes it clear that the best possible Lent has already been observed. Christ's fasting and conquest of our temptation is more complete than we can imagine. In his victory, Jesus shows us that endurance of temptation and hardship is a necessary part of carrying out our calling as Christians. The Lent of Jesus is a gift to us because it teaches us faithful obedience to God, consistent reliance on the word of God, and surrender to the plans of God despite the allure of wealth, status, and the apparent easiness of other callings. The Lent of Jesus is even more a gift to us because it reorients us and our own practices of Lent so that we can learn and we can practice them proceeding from his own perfect practice. This Lent, may we be led by the Holy Spirit so that we ourselves can overcome our wilderness experiences. The filling of the Holy Spirit will not insulate us from our temptation. But if we walk in the Spirit, as Paul says to the Galatians, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It is not guaranteed that we will not have such desires, but rather, guided by the Holy Spirit, we will not fulfill them. We should yield our lives daily to the Holy Spirit and walk in conscious dependence on him like Jesus did. Today, as we commune with him in the Eucharist, we accept the gift of a perfect Lent that will make our imperfect Lent more whole. And as his fast becomes our fast, his wilderness experience becomes our wilderness experience, his denial of self becomes our denial of selves, our sufferings become his passion, his death becomes our death, and then at last, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Amen.